Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 74. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we're celebrating the Wallbreaker's sixth birthday. The Wallbreakers has taken on many faces and worn many hats during the last six years, but one constant has remained. I've always wanted it to be a source for communication of ideas and a place where the past could come alive to help inform the present and build the future. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you very much. You can find Breaking Walls on iTunes and everywhere that you get your podcasts. Just use your favorite podcast service and search for Breaking Walls or The Wall Breakers. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that for the past year I've been producing many documentaries on moments in American radio history. These shows include episodes like 66 on Suspense, Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills. Suspense! And I found Howard Duff, who had played numerous parts in, you know, in the cast of Suspense and other shows that I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did quite a, quite a few of those, as I remember, once I... Uh, once I got to know Bill, and, uh, you know, he was kind of like that. If he mm-hmm. liked you, you worked. You know, you know they, they weren't really paying me that much. Episode 70 on how Jack Benny Jello and a tax code changed the network broadcast landscape forever. I got it through the Ed Sullivan Show. The sponsor? Uh, the Canada Dry Ginger Ale. They heard me on the Ed Sullivan Show. And as soon as that show was over, they called me and uh, made me an offer. What happened was, I was in New York, and Ed said, Jack, why don't you come on my show? He did a sports show or something. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what'll we do? He said, what'll we do? He said, oh, let you and I sit down, we'll write something. So we sat down, and there wasn't much Episode 72 on yours truly, John Dollar, and the death of the American radio drama on the major networks. Once I said goodbye to New York City. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. Quite I honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. And episode 73 on the attempted 1970s, 1980s major network radio drama revival. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. On today's episode, we'll follow up on those past two episodes. I was fortunate enough to speak with the creator of the Zero Hour, Mr. J.M. Kolos, and you'll get an opportunity to hear that chat in a few. Also, I'll play a portion of a recent conversation I had with the author of the Who Is Johnny Dollar Matter, Mr. John C. Abbott. If you haven't heard the past episodes, 72 and 73, I would recommend going back and listening to them for story continuity. And it's along those lines that I'm proud to say the next episode of Breaking Walls, number 75, on February 15, 2018, will usher in a new era where Breaking Walls will take on a new long-term story arc, a chronological history of the American radio drama. For anyone who doesn't know what radio drama was, 
At one time, radio wasn't just for talking music. Prior to television, people tuned into the radio to hear their favorite shows. In fact, many of the most popular shows on television in the 1950s were extensions of their radio versions. This first episode of the documentary, episode number 75 of Breaking Walls, will start at the beginning of radio in the late 19th century. From there, we'll work through the end of the first decade of the 20th century. Why those two points in time? Well, you'll have to tune in to find out. Now, to help fund this documentary, I've set up a Patreon at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Patreon is a reputable service that lets you become a patron of the show and unlock tiers of rewards in the process. By pledging $1 per month, your name will be added to the list of documentary supporters on our website, thewallbreakers.com, in the written credits for the show, and you'll be subscribed to the Wallbreakers newsletter, where you'll receive monthly project updates. Pledge $5 per month, and you'll get access to unreleased Wallbreakers podcast clips and other curated Golden Age of Radio moments on a distinct Patreon feed that you'll have easy access to. Pledge $10 a month, and you'll get all that, plus invites to secret cocktail and audio parties I'll be throwing at Milestone Moments. Pledge $15 per month, and you'll get all that, plus a free Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt. Browse the tees at thewallbreakers.com shop and let me know which one you'd like. Which, by the way, in the coming weeks, the clothing line will be expanding. So stay tuned. Pledge $25 a month, and you'll get all that, plus over-the-year name recognition and a thank you as an executive producer during the closing credits of each Breaking Walls episode. Pledge $50 per month, and you'll get all that, plus once per year, 15 to 30 second message of your choice produced as a custom commercial built within an episode of Breaking Walls. And finally, if you pledge $100 per month, you'll get all that, plus you'll be able to produce an episode of Breaking Walls with me from the ground up. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So let's keep this intro right here. After this brief pause, I'm going to get into my conversation with Mr. J.M. Kolos on the history of Zero Hour and his career in the process. Mr. J.M. Kolos, president of the Hollywood Radio Theater. So thank you for offering to chat with me today. I really appreciate that. Has anybody in a long time even reached out to you asking you any questions about Zero Hour? You know, occasionally somebody will find me or ask me about the show. It always surprises me since it's been such a long time ago. But I know there are, you know, radio buffs out there, and I certainly appreciate the fact that they remember it or want to know about it. I'm... Incredibly happy that you would be willing to speak about it. And also, I think it's something that you're one of the only people who still left that participated in the Zero Hour. So I think that you could probably expand on just what everybody has come to know as the truth surrounding the show or where the idea came from for you and, and why you wanted to, you know, why you wanted to relaunch radio drama in the early 1970s. And that's one of the first questions I'd like to ask you. Why in the early 1970s did you say, oh, I think this is a good time to try a radio drama again? I really don't know how to answer that because I don't remember if there was a aha moment. I think it was more that I was very, and I always have been, very entrepreneurial. Something probably that I read, something that I heard, maybe some article about radio. I've always kind of been a nostalgic you know, into nostalgia, and uh, in fact, some of my later things would in- indicate that as well. So it probably was sparked from something that I that I read, and uh, as I said, I, w- I probably uh, said, hey, there's maybe an idea there. Uh, it's been a while. I was, you know, heavily involved in the advertising marketing business and uh, dealt with broadcast radio and television stations, 
and I thought it might be kind of fun to see if I could make it work, and that's probably the genesis of the idea. You went to college for radio and television production, is that correct? I went to University of Southern California. I was a communications major. I guess I minored in, in radio and television. That was my interest, but to be totally candid, I knew that I didn't want to be in the insurance business, and I'm using that as a metaphor for, you know, being, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something either in entertainment or advertising, mm-hmm. uh, in communication. I probably didn't know exactly what at that time. I had just got out of the Army. I graduated high school, and the um, Army had a six-month reserve program which allowed you to go active duty, and then you kind of went to meetings for a number of years. I took advantage of that program, and when I finished, I went on to USC, and I always had this, I grew up in the west side of LA. A lot of my friends' parents were in the entertainment business. My dad wasn't, he was in the furniture business, uh, but you know, I grew up on that, around that environment, always was attracted to it, so. I probably had the bug about entertainment or communication, but I don't think I have a specific recollection of what I wanted to be, you know, when I was um, at USC. Mm-hmm. However, uh, interestingly enough, I had several part-time jobs, one of which was a page at CBS TV City. Another one was working for one of the local TV stations. Um, I actually was, uh, on radio at USC. They had a classical radio station. I didn't last long because I had trouble pronouncing all those Russian classical <laughs> composers. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, I was around it, but I can't specifically say that I you know, knew exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that I probably didn't want to work in a big corporate environment uh, and eventually go out on my own. Mm-hmm. Has that been something that has driven you to run different businesses through your life, That to not necessarily conform to someone else's wish, like in a corporate environment or, you know, working in the ad agency, working and doing various things now, even today, putting on theater productions? Has that always been something for you, that you wanted to be in charge of your own money and your own career and your own time as much as possible? Absolutely driven driven that way, yes. I started off the, the work at CBS was, of course, part-time while I was going to USC. And then I went to work uh, in a mailroom at an advertising agency. They had a training program. That's kind of how you got started. And it was called Carson Roberts. They were a terrific little boutique agency on the West Coast. Handled uh, Mattel Toys was their first account. Mattel had just gotten off the ground. It was a garage operation initially. And um, uh, after that, I went to work for a small agency, spent about five years with them, and one day decided that either it was now or never. And so I uh, took a count or two with me and opened up my own little agency and, you know, was in the advertising business, did pretty well pretty quickly, but also started doing a lot of entrepreneurial things entertainment-wise. So yes, the bottom line answer is that I've always been driven to uh, try to execute on ideas that I have, not just do them. Um, if I could come up with something, I wanted to see if I could actually make it work. And with Zero Hour, when you decided that this was something that you wanted to pursue, according to Elliot Lewis, you called a man named Jack Myers who put you in touch with Elliot Lewis. I think so. I think that's probably correct. I don't remember how I got a hold of Jack. He wasn't, as I was talking to people about 
this idea. Perhaps someone had mentioned Jack as, a, as a, somebody that knew his way around the business, and um, maybe then I most likely talked to Jack, and then, as he said, put me in touch with Elliot, and uh, I put together kind of the outline, the concept of what I was looking for, then we put the package together, and that's kind of how it started. So would this be something that, I have also, by the way, spent probably a decade working in the advertising industry, so I'm generally familiar when you just said that in my mind I'm thinking oh you must have put together a creative brief and went about it as if you were pitching it as if it wasn't just a radio show it's almost as if it was any other kind of creative endeavor would that be accurate then you basically put together a creative brief like you just said I don't think it was quite as focused as that I think mm-hmm. I just probably had an idea you know could we come back and could we would radio drama work in 1973 and had enough time passed and was it a you know niche market I don't know that I ever looked at things that, not to say I shouldn't have, because I've certainly made some mistakes along the way, but I don't think I ever looked at anything that detailed. I kind of had an idea, and I said, let's see if I can make it work. It, you know, it, was, it, it, was, it wasn't this long, thought-out, step-by-step process. It was a little more seat-of-the-pants, in, in a way. To be entrepreneurial, you have to be willing to take those kinds of risks, correct? And even maybe wind up with some egg on your face in order to make something successful, right? That's sort of the, the, the chance you take. Absolutely. After all these years, I've had a lot of egg I've had to wipe off my face. Yes, uh, one of the prices you pay for that, you know, not getting that guaranteed paycheck is taking risks. Mm-hmm. And so I've been a, pretty much of a, a risk taker most of my life. It's probably why I'm on my second marriage because <laughs> it was different. That's the right. No shame, guilt, or regret, correct? Right? If you're going to run your own business, that's the only way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly no uh, no shame, No, re- absolutely no regret. And yeah, it, that's, again, that's, that was, that's the price that you pay, you know. But I, I get up every day pretty excited about, you know, what I'm about to do that day. So that, it's been very satisfying, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Do you have Jewish heritage from the Lower East Side of New York? I've noticed... For instance, Orchard Street Productions, Orchard Street is the Lower East Side. Actually, my first endeavor in the, in the, in the whole theatrical live theater business happened about right around the 2000, year 2000 or so. I had taken a tour with uh, Paula, my present wife, and my son, Philip, of uh, the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, which is on Orchard Street. Sure, yeah. And I took the tour... Um, it was a tenement that had been, um, you know, uh, it was a time capsule. Yep. It's a terrific museum, basically, but it's a, it's a tenement. And it's where my grandfather would have lived or lived in that area after he got off the boat on Ellis Island, Jewish immigrant, uh, Eastern European Jewish immigrant, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands that came in late in the, uh, you know, up to about in the 1910, 1915, in that era. 
anyway, I took this tour. We finished the tour, and I looked at Paula, and I looked at Philip, and I said, you know what, this might make a good idea for a musical. A couple years later, we had mounted the production of Stoop on Orchard Street, which was, it turned out, uh, in a theater six blocks from the Tenement Museum. Mm. In fact, for my promotional partner, in the early first six or seven months, we were off-Broadway with that production eight shows a week for 16 months. Mm-hmm. We had a second company in South Florida and a national tour, so it's been performed about a thousand times. But it came out of a visit to the uh, Tenement Museum. Would you say that that is a big part of being entrepreneurial. It's finding these experiences and then trusting your instincts to say, hey, there's something here. You're saying you, it's, I think it's okay what you, that you fly by the seat of your pants sometimes, right? You can't always plan every detail because you don't know what's going to be around the corner anyway. Yeah, you know, that's, I think that's probably true. After you get kicked around a lot, you find out, you know, as, as great a planner as you think you might have been, something turns up that, wasn't expected, and you couldn't do anything about it, and um, it's important, this is almost a cliche, but it's important to, you know, not just, many people will be negative, will try to discourage you, Uh, it's a tough thing to try to overcome. Should I have listened sometimes? Absolutely, but the other side of that is, I did go ahead and do things that were successful, both creatively and, and otherwise, and if I hadn't gone ahead with it, it would have bothered me because I, I didn't want to ever go back and say, gee, I wish I had done that. You sure. Know? I wish I had tried that. Right, and how often we hear that when people are close to leaving this world, they regret the things they didn't do, not what they did do. Well, that was one of the things that did, I was about 28 when I went out on my own, that is, when I just made the decision to leave the ad agency and open up on my own. And I remember quite distinctly that I would have people come into my office. These were like radio salesmen or, or people that were, you know, salespeople. And they were older, maybe in their 40s. And they'd say, you know, Jay, I wish I had done this. And yeah, maybe I should going to do this, but I can't, you know, because I've got a wife and two kids and I do uh, that kind of stuff. And they were kind of just, uh, you know, they were okay, but they just, they weren't happy exactly in what they were doing. Or maybe I should have been an opera singer or I should have, you know, I wanted to join the circus. Um, obviously making light of some of that, but basically that's kind of the sense I got. And I, thought about that and I said that's certainly not where I want to be and I think that influenced me a great deal. In 1973 you were quoted from the Associated Press as saying that with Zero Hour you were trying to anticipate a trend and that you felt there would be a demand for new shows on radio and so that you wanted to be the first one out of the box with it. I think what I thought was we could start a new trend, we could start something and uh, others might follow. I do think I did see a nostalgia wave coming. Maybe that was what I kind of meant by that. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, and once again, I know this was 1973, by the way, so this is really stretching back. Have you done any radio after the Zero Hour? Was that the only experience that you had in attempting to do a radio drama? Yeah, that was it. You know, we did, as you know, the show was a five-parter mm-hmm. with a hook every, uh, you know, at the end of each half hour. So it was Monday through Friday, and then he'd pay off the show on, on Friday. Mm-hmm. 
we did 65 episodes that way. But then, you know, Mutual took over, and I'll be happy to explain how that happened. Mm-hmm. But And so I was out of it at that point. I had really nothing to do with it uh, after that. And, you know, was on to other projects. So, no, the answer is no. I did not do anything radio-wise or programming-wise after that. But I do remember actually uh, knowing I was doing this podcast, I kind of went back to think about how some of that happened. I do remember now what happened and why I made the move to make the deal with Mutual, if you're interested. Yes, please. Well, I want to ask you first, was Rod Serling a part of the production before Mutual? You brought him on when you were selling to syndication. Yeah, Rod Serling, you know, was my choice. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so we, yeah, we preceded, Mutual came in later, I basically sold the series to Mutual. Mutual had nothing to do with it until the time I decided to see if I could make a deal with them. But, uh, that was, that was, so no, I brought in Rod early on, and then I guess he carried on with Mutual after that. Mm. What are your recollections of working with Rod Sterling? He passed away two years after that, actually, and he was so young at the time. I read a quote from him saying that, when he was first working at WNYC and also he worked in radio prior to television, he appreciated the kind of experience it was as far as learning how to pace a story in time, but he didn't like working for radio stations, but he appreciated the art of the radio drama. What are your recollections, I guess, of him? He probably didn't like the whole corporate thing. I think he didn't like to be constricted. He didn't want his work done by committee, I don't think. Sure. Um, he was a terrific guy. Uh, he lived in the Palisades, Pacific Palisades, fairly close to where I lived. So I thought of him as the host, and I asked around, and somebody gave me his number, home number, and I called him. And we hit it off, and uh, I guess we met, and he loved the concept, and uh, it was a pretty easy arrangement. So he was already in place when Elliot Lewis came on board, and we put the production team together. I got to know him a little bit. You know, he was a heavy smoker. He was, and at that course, in that time, he smoked on airplanes. And we traveled quite a bit together because we did a lot of promotion for the show. And I was out a lot selling the show, you know, the radio stations. Mm-hmm. And then he and I went out on this promotional tour. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoyed his company a lot. Actually, um, I remember one incident. He had written something for, I think it was Twilight Zone, but I, but I may be wrong about a bomb that's placed on an airplane and that when the airplane reached a certain height, the bomb would explode. It was something in that vein. Well, we landed in, I think it was Salt Lake City, and there were a bunch of reporters there. And in fact, somebody had was attempting to do exactly what was Rod had written about in this piece that he had done. So they were curious about whether he had, in fact, felt responsible for all that and that kind of stuff. Mm. I do remember that quite vividly. Mm. But he was a great guy to travel with. He was very nice and very accommodating to everybody. Do you remember where you were recording, the doing the production of the show from, what the studio was? I think it was Radio Recorders. There was two studios. Yeah, we're doing a lot of commercials, too, so I was. we were using a, a, you know, radio, a recording studios. Gold Star was one that I remember, but I think it may have been radio recorders. And now, did you form the Hollywood Radio Theater with the express purpose of getting Zero Hour off the ground? Well, that was just, 
the umbrella name. Mm-hmm. The Hollywood Radio Theater presents Zero Hour. It was nothing more than just an umbrella. Was I thinking about other programming? No. I think it was just a device. I don't think there was anything more to it than just an umbrella name presents Zero Hour. That, mm. was, that was the idea. Gotcha. And now you were just starting to intimate about why you made the deal with Mutual. I've heard several interviews with Elliot Lewis over the years in the 70s and 80s where he basically said that you couldn't necessarily rely on syndication because of you had to sell to individual stations and you needed to make a deal to get stronger backing behind you. That's probably true as a practical matter, but what really happened when I was putting the budgeting together or thinking about what it was going to cost to produce this, uh, these shows, I went to AFTRA, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and I said, look, I want to do, I want to bring back old radio, and what is the scale, and how does that work, and, you know, what are we talking about from a union standpoint? And while they didn't laugh me out of the office, they thought I was a little bit nuts, and said, I, we, you know, we don't know, we haven't done it, I don't know, and they gave me some figure, which was, it was, I think it was maybe $80 a segment, something like that, which meant that an actor would get, what, $400 for, the, for doing the five shows, which mm-hmm. sounded pretty good, you know, they were going to go along with it. So, and then they, you know, they wished me luck, but they kind of kind of got the sense they thought I was just some nut off the street. Right. Uh, several months later, after we were off the ground and there was a lot of publicity and all this kind of stuff, I get a call from AFTRA. They said, would you mind coming in? We'd like to meet with you. And I, so I go in and sit down and got a bunch of people around the table and boardroom thing and well, you know, we, we quoted you this, but now that you're a success, you know, you should be paying more, and here's what we think you ought to be doing, and it was, it was that kind of conversation, and, and, the, and not only that, but anyway, all the the, the union kind of stuff uh, that, that had, although we were an AFTRA, we were doing it as an AFTRA signatory, they were writing new rules or trying to get, get me to agree to a much more, uh, a different financial model. And I said, you know, here, you know, my entrepreneurial thing was kicking in. I said, here, I created this thing. I've, you know, new jobs, all these people get whatever. And I was very, I was maybe very disillusioned. Uh, now, keep in mind, I was still, you know, I was relatively young. I hadn't been involved in the minefield that you end up going through. So mm-hmm. I was a little bit naive as well. But Nevertheless, I was disillusioned. I said, hey, you, know, you know, the hell with it. Now, was that basically because they were essentially union strong-arming you in a way? I felt they were, and I felt it was uncalled for at that point because, you know, I'm the one that took this gamble. Right. I'm the one that started this whole thing, and there's certainly every right to get more money for their... But I didn't... No, none of the actors were complaining. Everybody was thrilled to do it. We had no problem getting these films. Uh, to do these shows, and uh, everybody loved it. It was kind of a love fest. They were putting, uh, bringing uh, this other business reality into it. And I think I just felt, you know, I just don't want, it's just not worth it. Plus, it was probably going to be that much more difficult to make it work financially. Uh, and I was exhausted. I'd been on the road a lot, selling the show and all this stuff. So I said, maybe I should just make a deal with somebody and let them figure out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happened. And I don't remember how the mutual thing exactly started, but we talked and I made a deal and that was it. And then, of course, they changed the format. But I really had nothing to do with it after that uh, first initial mm-hmm. 65 segments. And neither did Elliot Lewis. He claimed that once 
went to Mutual, they they never called him after that, and they produced it themselves. They went non-union and got in trouble, basically, very quickly. Well, I didn't know that they went non-union. That's new information. I do think that, I don't think Serling was real happy. I listened to the show once or twice, and it seemed it was very, um, it was, I don't know, it, it was different. You know, they, they were doing, where I have the five half hours with a hook every day, they did a, the one half hour complete, which actually probably was a, maybe a better way to go, but I thought we needed a hook to kind of mm-hmm. make it a different and get more, and I thought we would get more promotional promotion out of it. But looking back, I, I don't know that that wasn't somewhat of a mistake. Well, both a serial format, like the way you produce Zero Hour at the beginning, that was relatively common in the golden age of radio days. So it was something that you could see w- could potentially be successful, too. That's true. It's just, it's just the, the trying to, you know, as in, in 1973, although certainly not like today, but still there were many more choices than, you know, in 1947. So getting people to pay attention and to, to be loyal and back every night was probably a little more of a challenge mm. but um, I thought creatively uh, the shows were good and we had a lot of fun doing it. I don't know if you remember this but you were at a closed circuit press conference in November of 1973 to announce it with Mutual along with Rod Serling and they threw it to Elliot Lewis in Hollywood and he gave a little presentation as well. Do you have any recollection of that? No, I don't remember that I was there. I was there actually. The press conference has been sort of circulating online. You can find it, and you are introduced as being one of the people on the dais in the press conference. You don't speak during it, so perhaps okay. you weren't there, and they just announced that you were the president of the Hollywood Radio Theater. Okay, well, maybe they asked me to be there for the changeover, and right. um, I don't remember talking or anything of that nature. The man who was the president at the time of Mutual was a man named C. Edward Little. Did you have any dealings with him? Yeah, that's who I negotiated the deal with. Up until the point that you basically turned the production of the deal over to them, how did you find doing business with him? Do you think he was an honest business guy or knew what he was doing in terms of radio? Or not? <laughs> well, I assumed he did. I mean, I only had a couple. We, we made the deal fairly quickly. I think we met in person once, probably talked on the phone a couple of times. But the deal was made fairly quickly. And one conversation I do remember had to do with hells and dams. I wanted the stories to continue to be strong. I think maybe that's where we had a little bit of a falling out because I was, you know, I wanted to do strong pieces. I know Rod did, a little, little more edge to them, and they said something about, well, you know, we can only do, I don't know, two hells and one day. I don't know, there's some stupid kind mm-hmm. of corporate thing, and I and I probably tuned out after that. Yep. But that, that that was what I, one of the things I do remember. Mm. But I never really had anything to do with Mutual. Once the deal was made, it was their deal, and, you know, I was on to other things. Mm. That also, by the way, jives with everything that Elliot Lewis ever said. He was always, in any interview, was very complimentary of you and essentially very disparaging towards Mutual for their work on the show. And it also makes sense, right? It's 1973 or 74 at the time. You want the dialogue patterns to be reflective of what people were, how people spoke on the street in real life in 1974. Hell or damn is not exactly an uncommon term to hear. Yeah, well, I'm using that kind of as a metaphor for, you know, saying we wanted to do things that were stronger and as opposed to just a rehash of what was done in the 30s or 40s or 50s. In other words, in the same style, in the, you know, radio, uh, theater of the mind, all that kind of stuff. 
but to do stories that are a little more contemporary or stronger and, mm-hmm. and all that. And I think he was resistant to it because I think initially when we talked, you know, I was discussing whether I would stay on and they had wanted me to stay on. And, and, and then when we talked about, you know, the future, we can go back to the early part of what you and I were talking about, that whole corporate thing. It was mm-hmm. very, it was, you know, it, it was very clear to me that I was going to get really caught up in this whole corporate claptrap and yep. I just didn't do that. And I was going to like working for somebody and I think that's probably why I opted mm. out. I think you would agree that you can't make creative decisions by committee. No, absolutely not. Now, you and I get this. Well, obviously, you and I are both creative men who also have experience working in the advertising industry. But why is it that corporations have never seemed to figure this out? I, I don't understand. You are, have 45 years more life experience than me, but it's been an ongoing source of frustration for me in my career as well. Well, it's, it's a lot of cover your ass. The, the reality of security of not of, of got a job and it just seems so sad that someone would go through life hate what they do you know look forward to retiring as opposed to look forward to doing something I don't know I never got that we have my, my wife has a lot of friends who are professionals and so many of them just dislike what they do and even though they do well and they're doctors and lawyers and corporate types but their whole thing is i can't wait to retire or like you know that kind of stuff and tomorrow's never guaranteed you might not get your retirement absolutely you know you look at a lot of the uh, great comedians and the uh, people that are they never want to stop you know they they love they yeah, some of it's they, the whatever they love the applause they love the the adulation, but they need to be creative and don't work until they drop. I mean, Bob Hope was working, uh, trying to anyway, and well into what, 90s George Burns. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the connection with me and Mel Brooks, but, you know, Mel is still active and at 91, he, he can't wait to get up in the morning to do whatever he needs to do. Mm. I guess what you're saying is beyond the uh, the whole need to be essentially creative or whatever. We're talking about getting up with purpose in the morning, feeling like you're part of something or that you're trusting your gut or you're putting yourself out there, all of those sort of cliche terms, but they make sense, right? That you live life with purpose, you'll get places, but people, maybe they're afraid to fall on their face a little bit too. Yeah, they're afraid of what other people will think. They're afraid of failure, which is certainly understandable, and you're going to fail. You're afraid that, yeah, they're exact, that's exactly the... the, the the situation where they don't want to take the risk and I don't know I guess in some cases it works out in many cases it doesn't do you think any of the dealings that you had the second time around with AFTRA had to do you mentioned that you were still fairly young at the time you were in your early 30s do you think your age at the time I could be just projecting because I'm in my early 30s but perhaps they looked at you and said well here's a young guy we can kind of take advantage of him do you think that's part of what it was yeah, I probably came off as a little bit naive or uh, stars in my eyes, and uh, um, I wasn't thinking business per se. I was more in the creative. I was excited about what we were doing, and and maybe they read into that some naivete and the ability to push me around a little bit. That certainly may have been uh, part of it. Or it may have been, you know, what is this guy uh think he knows that we don't know. After all, we're in the business, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I, who knows? Uh, 
whatever it was, it was not pleasant. Sure. When you were selling the show Zero Hour to syndication to stations individually, after that, once they took the show on, did you have any responsibility to find advertising for them for the show, or was that up to them? I think in the main it was up to them uh, because, you know, if, if I sold a show in uh, the series in Phoenix, I wasn't about to help them, or not that I wouldn't have, but as a practical matter, help them with local advertisers. Uh, and, you know, a radio station would have their list of advertisers and or they knew who they thought would be a good sponsor of the show. And I think most of the time they were sponsored as opposed to spot advertisers, you know, mm -hmm. brought to you by such and such car dealer or whatever. Sears came into it. I think we may have helped with Sears. I think that they became kind of a corporate entity. And so that they may have picked up certain of the sponsorship and then left some local spots in there. But that was a little later in the morning, I think. That also jives with the fact that a few years after he worked with you, Elliot Lewis worked on CBS for the Sears Radio Theater. So it seems like as an advertiser, Sears was very interested in being in the radio drama business. Yeah, I think they thought the demographic was good for them. CBS Mystery Theater, you mean? Yeah, isn't that, is that the one you're talking about? No, I'm not talking about the CBS Mystery Theater here. In 1979, Elliot Lewis worked on a show called the Sears Radio Theater on CBS that they ran it back-to-back -back with the uh, Mystery Theater. And after oh, one okay. season, CBS dropped it and Mutual picked it up for one year. But according to Elliot Lewis, much of the same things that happened when Mutual picked up Zero Hour, Mutual did again five years later or, or whatever with the Mutual Radio Theater, basically. So they basically didn't learn their lessons. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I kind of re now remember that, but um, I do remember that CBS Mystery Theater came in after us. Correct. Uh, Shortly we, thereafter. We were kind of the pioneers, and yep. then they, they came in. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Zero Hour was ever given a fair chance to catch on? Either uh, Elliot Lewis always said that it did very well on syndication, but because once Mutual picked it up, all the stations that had it in syndication were waiting for Mutual to catch up. They lost a lot of listenership that way because you had 13 weeks of shows and then dead air for however many weeks after that, before a second season was to begin. Do you think it was given a fair chance in the end, Zero Hour? You mean because it lost momentum? Correct. Between the, Correct. Uh, uh, yeah, probably. You you would definitely lose listeners to drop off, and then you had to try to get them back again. So, yeah, I, I would think that, that that would have had some effect, definitely. I don't remember how long it was. I assume what they did was repeat. Yes, they uh, repeated. They repeated the thirteen. Yeah, they repeated the thirteen five-part dramas. I mean, right. So they repeated that. So you were definitely going to have some drop-off just based on that for people that had already listened to it. Uh, but I don't know how. You know, uh, did they immediately start? I, I, what was the timetable when they restarted uh, with the new stuff? Do you know? Do you mean for the second season? Well, after the repeats, after they ran the repeats, what had nothing to do with they. That's after, after they would acquired Zero Hour from me, uh, they ran the repeats, I guess, and then they started the new shows. So I didn't, what was the timetable after the repeats to when they started the new 
series. Correct. I don't know so, the, so the, basically, according to the scheduling that I've seen, after they ran the 13 weeks, they went dark for a couple of months and then came back with the single... It was five days a week, 30-minute dramas with the same star appearing five times for the week. So it was like a, a featured star for the week. And it only ran a few months before they canceled it. By July of 74, it was canceled. I see. I do remember it was cluttered, advertising-wise. Yes. Very cluttered. And that was something... So one of the problems when the Mutual Radio Theater ran again a few years later, it was an hour-long broadcast, but only 36 minutes of it were for drama. The other 20-plus minutes were spot time or, or uh, uh, station identification time. So you just yeah. you can't really produce a creative show like that. It's too many no. too many frequent breaks. No, I think we I think our half hours were pretty standard. I don't I'm guessing six minutes in a thirty probably twenty thirty airtime probably six six minutes of advertising in that. Although I I don't know specifically. I think that's what it was. It was like maybe twelve minutes an hour. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that was kind of the standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because that was still a TV standard up until recently. I think it's like a forty an hour long show is about forty seven minutes. Elliot Lewis, by the way, also said when they were talking with him in the mid eighties about what happened with the zero hour once it went to mutual and about the amount of ads, and he went out of his way to say that you would have never done that. That you basically you knew what you were doing when it came to advertising, and that's not something that you would ever do. And obviously, mutual did not. So he was again very complimentary of you. Well, that's very. Uh, it's actually very nice, and I did not know that. You know, I didn't. I, I lost track of Elliot after uh, we turned over to Mutual, and and also uh, in looking back, I didn't really appreciate. Uh, I mean, he was phenomenal. You know, in, in his work as a professional, as a director, and and all that. But I didn't really appreciate who he was, and and his. You know, until later, until I really started to. I mean, I, you know, I knew his background a little bit, but he was an icon. Mm. How much dealing did you have with him while you were working with him? Was he somebody that you had met with in person, and while the show was being put together, you were... How present were you during the production? You know, I know you oh, were... I was there um, uh, for most, uh, not all, but most of the sessions. I would go in and uh, meet the performers, and mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I was there quite a bit. You know, I don't remember socializing with Elliot or, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't know that we had any major personal time together. It was a fairly hectic schedule, but it was, but we got it done. Do you remember why the story, The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, was selected to be the opening show? Or how Patty Duke Aston and John Aston were selected to be the opening pair? You know, we went out and licensed material, and it could have been as, as simple as that's the first script that came in and looked great. I don't know if I suggested Patty Duke or how that came about. I do remember being there definitely when she uh, was performing. And I remember one scene where she's at, you know, this is radio and she's crying. I mean, she's basically tears are coming out of her eyes. And, and then, boy, I'm thinking, wow, that's an actress, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody's seeing it. But she's really, really mm. shedding tears, mm. li- literally. I had a lot of uh, respect for her. I don't honestly know, though, how we picked her for that initially. Everything that I've ever heard, and you also mentioned this briefly, said that during the radio days, and I guess even in the 70s when it came back, there was a certain sense of camaraderie 
for the actors and the people producing these shows that never really existed on television. And you've also worked in television and done things with TV too. Have you ever noticed distinct differences between the two mediums, the way the people operate behind the scenes? Uh, every radio actor and actress always said there was no backstabbing in radio. Now that could be also a little bit of nostalgia on their part, but it does seem like it was a more civil and friendly sort of industry to work in than television. Well, certainly I don't know, you know what it was like during its heyday. When we brought it back, I think people were so thrilled to do it it was you know to, to, to do something that hadn't been done for a while and happy to be working in that environment and having uh, an Elliot Lewis direct them and I it was just a lot of fun and it was different it was something different for you know for them so yes there was definitely a lot of camaraderie there was I don't remember any kind of incident or backstabbing or that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun, and I think a lot of it had to do with the, the fact that everyone was just happy to be there. You know, it certainly wasn't the money. It was just doing something that was creative and, and different at that time, uh, and not what they normally did every day. So that's what we got. You know, we got TV actors and actresses and film people, and and I, it was never an issue about them getting paid after scale. Mm-hmm. In your dealings with doing theater over the last decade and a half, have you noticed any similarities between the way a theater production runs to the way a, a dramatic radio production is run? Are there similarities? There's a kind of a family thing that happens. You start to... I'm a writer, producer, and director, so if I'm writing something, and then you, you've got it on paper, and now I go to the process of, let's say, casting, uh, and trying to pick the right people for the room. And then we're talking about, mostly I do musicals, so uh, it's, a, it's a little different discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, you start to bring people on. They're a little wary at first. You go through like the table read. They get to know each other a little bit. And then we're rehearsing for four or five or six weeks, you know, four or five days a week. And everybody then gets to know each other. And uh, it is, you know, you've heard that often about some of these TV series where they feel like it's family and, and how, you know, how they feel uh, when, when the series ends. And that's kind of what happens. The same thing happens. It happened with Hollywood Radio Theater and, and it happens with most of my musical productions. They become family and, and then when the production is over, uh, it's kind of, okay, now what do we do? It's, mm. it's a letdown without question. For me too. I mean, you, you just... After that last performance, it's, wow, you know. It's almost like creative postpartum depression or something like that. You know, you've, you've had this baby for so long, and then you have to give it up because it come, the run comes to an end. Yeah, exactly. And then you try to, you know, start it all over again with something new or take that existing show in production and try to keep it going. But there is a, yeah, there's kind of this feeling of... Uh, I don't know, it's, uh, yeah, now what, after you do that last performance? There's, a sad, there's definitely a sadness to it. There's a, the sets are being taken down. And right now, you've just been producing Juice Store, and you just had your first run, correct? No, we uh, opened up last Memorial Day weekend in Cincinnati at the Aronoff Center. It's a performing arts center in Cincinnati, and we did three shows there. We sold all three out, which was great. And then we did it here in Nashville 
couple performances as a fundraiser for one of the local schools, day schools here. Mm-hmm. And now I'm working on uh, taking it out to a bunch of different markets with the idea that we can hopefully end up in New York maybe by the fall of 2019. Mm. If that does happen, by the way, being that I'm a native New Yorker who also has a huge appreciation for New York history as much as radio history, I'd be more than happy to help you out in some way if you needed help on anything with my background in advertising and design and audio. I would love to do that with you, just so That'd you know. That'd be great. I would certainly will. Uh, I'm, listen, I'm hoping we, we get there. You know, we had, a, as I said earlier, we had a 16th month run my first musical off-Broadway with the Stoop on Orchard Street, so I'm open to, and I think this this particular show has even greater potential, mm. and so I'm hoping that we can make it, you know, make it work. I mean, and as I said earlier, I've been a risk taker, but when you get into theater and you get into big productions, it takes a little more than just my own, so I have to uh, sometimes have to go out and put packages together, but that's what I'm in the midst of doing now. Mm-hmm. Do you have any upcoming shows for Juice Store or any other productions that you would like people to be aware of? I didn't write it. I produced and direct Golda's Balcony, which actually was Broadway's longest-running one-woman show. It's the uh, story of Golda Meir from impoverished uh, Russian schoolgirl to prime minister of Israel. And uh, it's a compelling uh, one-woman show that we do take around the country. And as I said, it ran on Broadway with Tova Felchu, who's outstanding, Tony nominated. So I licensed that. I wish I had written that, but I didn't. Mm. We're going to be performing in uh, Boca Raton for 10 shows in May, and we're working on additional bookings right now. So Golda's Balcony is one. Juice Store the Musical is another. And then I'm working on something totally different called Mayberry the Musical. Mm. What's the plot line for that? It's basically uh, using Mayberry, the town of Mayberry, the Andy Griffith show as a metaphor for innocence. You know, it's again, there's a nostalgia thing to it, but uh, it'll probably, uh, I've written about 11 or 12 of the songs already and working on the book, on the script. So we'll see how that develops. So if somebody was listening to this podcast and wanted to purchase tickets, let's say they live in Boca, or they're interested in more information about the upcoming productions, where could they go? The Meisner Theater in uh, Boca Raton. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, beautiful theater in Boca, or in the Meisner Cultural Center, I think it's called. Mm. May 2nd through the 13th. Mm. So, yeah, they can contact the Meisner, and if they do decide to go, I'll be there, ask for me, and I'll be happy to say hello to them. Great. Are you a podcast listener? Yes, but not, I mean, I'm, I'm not an everyday podcast listener. I certainly will be a wall breaker listener. Well, thank you. Um, but yes, I do. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm kind of a political junkie, so I tend to, news junkie, I guess. So I tend to listen to a lot of that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I love the free flow of podcasts, and yeah, I'm definitely more, every day, more and more of a, of a, of a listener. Mm. A friend of mine said last night to me, he said, you know, something changed in society where now we text each other. So when we're talking to each other, we're reading each other. And when we read, we're listening to books on tape. So we're listening to books instead of reading them and reading people's conversations instead of talking to them. And I had never thought of it that way before. And I said, that is really interesting that people are doing that. It's not really about anything. I just found that to be an interesting anecdote. 
I've heard that. I, I, for example, I think young people that, you know, in the so-called dating process, do, apparently seems to be less talking and more texting. Uh, that's how you, it just seems weird, but, uh, you know, who am I to say it doesn't work? I think that's one of the things that's lost a little bit, and maybe it's my age, but I think getting out there, you know, and getting to know people, and if you're working on a project, uh, meeting the people you're working with, not just emailing and talking over the phone. Well, talking over the phone is good, not just texting or emailing, but right. really getting people personally mm-hmm. is so much better. And I've always, most of my life, like, I'll jump on an airplane and, and go somewhere and sit down with someone and rather than just try to deal with it, you know, on um, sure email basis. Sure. Well, if you are in New York anytime soon, I would absolutely love to uh, take you out for some dinner or a drink or just meet you in person, shake your hand and connect with you because I appreciate this very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do you have a sense of when, uh, when this might air? Yes, absolutely. So this will air on February 1st. Okay. Do you repeat the shows at all? Well, since it's a podcast, it's essentially on-demand transcription. So anybody oh, once right. it's that's out, true. anybody can listen to it anytime. That's true. Do you have any questions of me before we go? Tell me a little bit about your uh, background. You said you're. Are you in the kind of in the advertising business right now? Not exactly. So I have spent most of my career. I went to school for art and design. My degree is in communications. So I graduated college in 2008, and I have an entrepreneurial spirit to begin with, but I think because my entire professional career has been in the midst of the post-recession climate, it's forcing people to be more entrepreneurial than ever before, and that lends itself well, I think, to me uh, in the end. So I grew up listening to the golden age of radio. I discovered it as a young teenager. I happened to grow up in a house that uh, I lived with three generations of relatives, my grandparents and my great-grandparents in the same house. So I was exposed to a lot of, you know, 20th century culture that maybe I wouldn't have been if I didn't have older relatives around all the time. So even though I went to school for art and design, I always gravitated towards radio drama and was running the Wall Breakers as a creative community where people could send me their creative work and I would write about it. And I decided I wanted to do a podcast and slowly but surely this podcast has turned more and more into dealing with moments in radio drama history or and now going forward starting on February 15th I'm going to take on a chronological history of American radio drama and start from the inception of radio and go through and it could be two years three years I don't know how long it's going to last but I'm going for there so that's basically my background art design media copywriter video guy audio guy all of the above really are there still like radio nostalgia radio conventions unfortunately no because Nobody is really left from the original radio days as far as actors, writers, producers. Everybody's gone. So in the last 15 years, they've all stopped. I was going to ask you at the end, who do you think or who owns the copyright for either the scripts or the audio? How, how does that, you see, you would seem to have more knowledge than most people that, how does that work? I do. I own it. Oh, well, uh, then I appreciate even more you giving me the permission since I, uh, I seem to have uh, circumvented that before you, you did. So I apologize, but thank you also. I simply mean by that that uh, yeah, I, I created it and, and own the copyright and the you know I licensed it out and it's you know I've seen it, it's all over the place so it's it's not like I've got any control over it mm-hmm. but technically uh, it's my uh, production at least the first uh, sixty five episodes mm-hmm. what I did was in essence 
with, with mutual, it was a license arrangement, not a um, outright sale arrangement. Right. Gotcha. Great. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anything else for me? No. But if something else comes up, feel free to let me know, and I'll look forward to hearing it on the first. Same here, and listen, again, thank you so much for your time. You were incredibly open with not only discussing the Zero Hour, but just talking about the way you think about life. And maybe because I feel sort of a kindredness towards the way you think, I appreciate it very much, but I appreciate it anyway because you were willing to speak with me today. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, James. Absolutely. Take care. Have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks. I want to thank Mr. J.M. Kolos once again for giving me his time. He had great insights on the history of the Zero Hour, and his own entrepreneurial spirit. As Jay mentioned, the Meisner Park Cultural Center in Boca Raton, Florida, will be the site for his Orchard Street production of Golda's Balcony from May 2nd through the 13th of 2018. You can find out more information at MeisnerParkCulturalCenter.com. That's M-I-Z-N-E-R. I'll have a link for that in the written credits of the show, by the way. And by the way, again, I would ask anybody listening to the show through iTunes to take two seconds to leave a rating and review. It'll help the algorithm and it'll help more people discover breaking walls. Word of mouth is still the main means of our advertising, so if you've been enjoying the show, I would appreciate that very much. But let's keep the 6th anniversary extravaganza moving along. A few weeks ago, I chatted with John C. Abbott, the author of the Who is Johnny Dollar Matter, about the first volume of his book, his upcoming updated volume, Growing up a baby boomer and Bob Bailey as a tragic figure. Being a kid, you were a kid, so you had, you know, you always went out and played. But I remember coming home, and at five o'clock was the Mickey Mouse Club, and you had to watch the Mickey Mouse Club. Forget about dinner, move dinner back, move dinner up, whatever. The Mickey Mouse Club was on, and that was your appointment viewing uh, as a kid. And then other shows came along. My dad was an ardent fan of westerns, so if there was a western movie on TV, you know, that's what we watched, and forget what else ever else might have been on, but, you know, you could just sit back and watch these programs and be visually entertained, and you didn't have to think about it. Mm. Is there some sort of parallel, do you think, between... The expanding world in the 1950s, the post-nuclear age, the beginning of the Cold War, and people wanting to tune out and forget about what was going on in their life. I mean, entertainment has always been an escape from the beginning of time. I think about a Vincent Price quote where he says, people fall asleep to television because they don't have to think. And radio is a better medium. That, that's him basically saying, I'm paraphrasing. But do you think that has something to do with it? Just people wanting to tune out? and It's, you know... You go with what's popular. Mm, very if, true. And, and you can think of all the fads that have come along through the decades. If people were given the opportunity to have a Dick Tracy wrist radio with a television screen on it, and that became popular, everybody would have one mm -hmm. because that, that's what was popular. Television was popular. That's what everybody watched. There were still people who remembered radio, and I'm sure that, well, the fact that uh, the CBS Mystery Theater was on for a number of years, it was on because people, no doubt, listened, and they got feedback from listeners, but it was not going to make or break the finances of the network. 
Right. Because, you know, if we're, okay, we're throwing this money out. Maybe we got 10,000 listeners. Gee, we got an, a wonderful opportunity here for a new series. We need some money for it. Hmm. 10,000 people versus 5 million people on television. Easy decision. And, you know, I hate to say it, but in the, the entertainment business, in radio, television, it was, am I profitable? Sure. The that, fact that Johnny so, Dollar lasted as long as it did, mm-hmm. being a sustaining program, is always a miracle, I think. But in another sense, I was told once, and I can't remember who told it to me, that a lot of the Johnny Dollar programs were provided to the writers by the insurance companies. Mm. So they were, in essence, doing a public service by showing these scams, these ploys that were being wasted upon the insurance companies, and by documenting them, it acted as a deterrent, in essence. Sure. In a couple of the Johnny Dollar episodes, that was pointed out, that, hey, you're doing a public service by airing these programs. But then again, at a certain point in time, once television was thoroughly ensconced into the 60s, there were probably TV shows that could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I was talking with a friend of mine. He said that um, Bob Bailey had uh, aspirations of being a, a leading man in the movies, which never really came about. He had aspirations of being a writer. And while he did write on a number of television programs, typically it was one or two episodes. And I'm thinking that probably when he fell off the wagon at the end of radio, that would probably affect his ability to get writing jobs. He was writing in a radio-esque style, because that's what he knew. He got in the door for a couple of episodes, but then the work involved in editing it to make it television-worthy, probably it wasn't worth the effort for the networks to uh, put that kind of effort into it, not when they had people who are raised on television who could do that kind of writing for them. Some of the old radio writers made the transition to movies and TV very well. Yeah, E. Jack Newman comes to mind right away. Yeah, Gil Dowd, you know, wrote for television. Yeah, they could. Bob had been ensconced in radio his entire, and ensconced in stage his entire life. You know, his daughter said that he started acting at the age of two. That was all he knew. And sometimes when you're stuck in a rut... It's kind of hard to stand up and say, oh, you know, know, this other road over here is much drier and easier to walk on. And all I got to do is just reinvent myself a little bit and I can have a much easier road to travel. But doing that reinvention is difficult sometimes. Right. And I got a feeling that Bob was so stuck in what he was doing and so... I think enamored of his abilities. Oh, yeah, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and really come to find out, no, he couldn't. Mm. And then when he finally did 
didn't uh, just fall off the wagon. He just disappeared. And I think that his friends in radio saw what was happening to them because his daughter said that he and Virginia Gregg were the best of friends. Mm -hmm. That he was good friends with Vincent Price. He used to have dinner with Vincent Price and Jack Johnstone. The kids hung out together. And the people who really knew him and appreciated him would rather just not rather not talk about Bob it. Bailey is certainly one of the most extreme cases of an actor or actress whose career plummeted after the death of radio, but I guess it's the unfortunate truth that people and things always get left behind in the name of progress. For example, John and I spoke about the differences in New York and Hollywood's overall feeling on radio production preservation through the Golden Age. And you mentioned to me the last time on the phone that you felt like most of the knowledge or the recordings or the transcriptions of anything that took place in New York wound up in the river shortly after they ceased production, but they saved it in Hollywood. Why save it? It's only worked. You know, who cares? Well, I wonder well, if that, you know... Sure. Videotaping and audio recording reel-to-reel was expensive, though, so I can see why they would tape over things or do things like that. Would you agree that we never really appreciate the history that we're creating right now, and we always look further back, and so then in 40 years we'll look back on things that we're doing now? Luckily, in the digital age, almost everything is saved, but... Well, you know, it goes back to the old saying, you know, genius is never recognized in his own time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We don't appreciate the things that we have. The people back then, you know, it was a job. It was something to do. They enjoyed doing it. Uh, I don't think anybody ever sat back and said, boy, that was a good program. I wonder what they'll think of it 70 years from now. Sure. <laughs> you know, you know, 70 years from now, they probably didn't even think that anybody would uh, know about them. Right. Part of it would be that you probably almost never really heard your own programs because you were there recording it live. A guy I used to know, who I believe has since passed on, he had the opportunity to meet with Jack Johnstone mm -hmm. after he had retired. And he was talking to him about Johnny Dollar and whatnot. And he said, do you have any of your programs? He says, nope, I don't have a one. And so he got him some tapes of Johnny Dollar to listen to, and that's the first time he had heard them in years. Mm. Yeah, well, I, you know, Jack had been in the business since the early 30s, mm -hmm. so he's, you know, uh, probably got 30-some years in the business. You know, he'd seen things, uh, you know, from uh, the standpoint of being a writer and a director, and probably once or twice, if he wouldn't admit it, but he'd probably been an actor on a show. And he had seen what had happened to others. I think in one of his uh, interviews, I don't think it was a Spurdback one, somebody asked him, well, why didn't you go into films? And he said, films is a very dirty business. Television is a very dirty business. And I just did not want to have to deal with that. Mm. He cleaned out his desk, emptied his file cabinet, retired. When uh, the program moved to New York, essentially, uh, Jack Johnstone would write a script, he'd mail it to New York, and he'd write the next one, send it to New York, 
and they would do what they would do with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times he would put a script title on the, the script. And, uh, for example, there is a program called the Paperback Mystery Matter. The actual title of that script is the Death by Jet Matter. So, you know, New York would get it. they change it to whatever. Why do you think that the Thousand Oaks Library even has these scripts if Johnstone was because mailing them? Somewhere along the line, Jack Johnstone has sent a copy of these scripts to, or, or the Pacific Pioneer broadcasters had gotten uh, Jack Johnstone's archive of scripts, and that's why they exist. As I mentioned in the beginning, John is working on an updated volume of his book, The Who is Johnny Dollar Matter. He had this to say about it. I have just gone back, and uh, the actual title of that program the medium well done mm. Mm. So that's going to be that's going to be a change in the book which will no doubt roil a few people but uh, hey I'm sorry that's what the script title page says so take me through this in doing a second version of this book what made you say I want to go back is it just that finding new information to correct things or well first of all the initial volume was fraught with errors that's one thing that I felt I needed to get rid of that mm-hmm in sure. the passage of time, there were resources that I did not know about. Mm -hmm. Number one being the old-time radio researchers group. They had put together a series of script title pages that my friend Joe Webb got me after he found my book. Once I had those and saw where character names were wrong, titles of programs were wrong, uh, I said, you know, i got to update this stuff. New information has come about. When I went to Thousand Oaks in 2005, I believe it was, they had a set of scripts, and I went back through the title pages and got the ones where I did not have you know, an electronic copy of the program. Unfortunately, I can get the title pages, and in some instances the closing page, but because they feel that those programs are still under copyright protection from the person who wrote them without express permission to copy the entire script from the author, who in some cases is dead, you can get the title page, you can get the ending page, and that's about it. I spent a lot of time writing a lot of information down, which if I had just been able to copy the entire script, it would have made life a lot simpler. But... Life is what it is. Then in my second trip, they had found some scripts who had been given to the library by the Pacific Pioneer broadcasters. A friend of mine, Stuart Wright, he's a heavy-duty researcher. He went out there and he found these things and he said, oh, by the way, you need to come out here because there are a lot more scripts available. Some of them are pertaining to the Bob Reddick run, which we didn't know existed. So when I went out there in uh, October, I looked at these things and have cleared up uh, a number of mysteries about the Bob Reddick scripts. But in doing that, 
uh, I created a problem because I had 96 program titles in a time span that only allowed 95. Mm -hmm. So which one was going to hit the cutting room floor is the old saying goes. And I am wrestling with myself on that even as we speak. Do you believe that it's, it's really just the same script twice with two different titles? Oh, I know for a fact it is. Right, so you just have to figure out. But no, because no. you can't what, look at the, the scripts... The, let me bring up my spreadsheet here. In the OTTR scripts, there is a script in their canon called the dollar put in jail matter. Right after that is the short term matter. Mm -hmm. They're the same program. Because if you listen to the tags at the end of the very fishy matter, for example, which is the program right in front of it, next week, I am put in jail for a very good reason. That helps. And in the short-term matter, guess what? Johnny Dollar is in jail. Sure. So that helps clarify how these things come into play. There were programs that are in the canon. For example, there's one that's called The Locked Room Murder Matter. Well, yeah, that's it, but that's not the actual title of the program. The How do you go about really confirming this stuff with nobody who's by alive? Looking, by looking at the scripts, by reading the scripts, by comparing them to, where possible, the electronic versions of the programs to try and educe you know what really is going on here it's a program called the art for my sake matter if you look at it that has the same storyline as what it could be and actually it is called or the christmas christmas present matter so there you know you've got stuff that works its way out. There ha is a program that is called The Big Date Matter, mm -hmm. which uh, everybody pretty much put at the end of the Reddick run because didn't have anything to tie it to. In going back and looking at some of these scripts, there is a, a script called The True Love Matter, which sends Johnny to... Miami Beach for a case of missing jewels. So it's the true love matter, also called the missing jewels matter. Mm -hmm. So I can pretty much establish that that took place on January the 1st. Very beginning of the big date matter, Johnny is called and said, oh, you're still in Miami Beach? Mm -hmm. That dates the big date matter to January the 8th of 1961, mm -hmm. not June. One of these, one of my spreadsheets, I went back and I looked at the tags for every one of Reddick's programs. My friend Stuart Wright got me some program listings from the newspapers from the Wisconsin State Journal, a bastion of independent literature in the Midwest, which I have then correlated to program listings in the Washington post to determine where these things fit in the canon. And so I have pretty much uh, taken the beginning of the Bob Reddick canon, kind of 
thrown it on its ear, so to speak, so that I have room now for all of my programs. But I have also determined in order to try and get programs to line up with some absolute hard-coded dates. I know, for example, that there is a Mandel Kramer program called the Phony Phone, which reuses a Jack Johnstone title, which aired on December the 17th. Why? Because in the program, he says, next week, there will not be a program because next week we will be listening to Sing with Bing, which was broadcast on December 24th. Yes. It's essentially you're going and having to re-listen to audio over and over again to try to look for little cues to how to line these up. Oh, absolutely. And when I do this, I found that in that time span from December 4th, 1960, to the end of the run, there were... 95 weeks where I could have a program. I had 96 programs. And I'm looking at this and envy the list of programs from the old-time radio listeners. There is a program called One of the Rottenest Rackets Matter. It's in between a program called the Double-Barreled Matter and the Medium Rare Matter. I have come to the conclusion that program does not exist. It does not exist for several reasons. A, every program that Jack Johnstone wrote started with B. This one doesn't. The double-barreled matter, the tag for that is, next week, one of the rottenest rackets in the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, a story with a twist at the end. And if you listen to the, the medium rare matter, that's exactly what that is. It's about a fortune teller who is fleecing people. Mm -hmm. One of the rotten, and you know, Jack Johnstone had a history of dealing with mediums and clairvoyance and that sort of stuff. And he kind of felt that there were some honest people, but there were also some charlatans out there who were out to take anybody they could. Sure. So for that and another a couple of other reasons, that program got kicked out and I have finally gotten all of these programs to flow together, one to the other, looking at all the tags and whatnot. I know which programs really exist and which ones I wish we had a program for, and that will be part of uh, version two. Soon, maybe to hit a newsstand near you in the spring. This spring of 2018? Yes. Expense account total? $1,095. Remarks? Nil. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. I would like to once again thank Mr. J.M. Kolos and Mr. John C. Abbott for giving me their time. Be on the lookout for John C. Abbott's updated volume of the Who is Johnny Dollar Matter coming later this year. If you can't wait until then, you can search for a copy of the book, Amazon preferably, and you can pick up a copy. Today's introduction music was Cesar Franck's Symphony in D Minor, Part 3, the finale, and our outro music will be Modest Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, Promenade Number 1. To be kept easily abreast with this show, join the Facebook group by searching for The Wallbreakers on Facebook. 
There, you'll get notifications when wall-breaking things are occurring, and you can also follow us on Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter at The Wall Breakers. You can find Breaking Walls on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, once again, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It'll help more people discover this show. And remember, the next episode of Breaking Walls, number 75, which will be available starting February 15th, it'll start the chronological history of the American radio drama. We'll begin at the beginning of radio, and over the course of the next several months, we'll tell the story of this medium in hopefully the most comprehensive and interesting way ever presented. To support the documentary and this show, please go to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so at james at thewallbreakers.com. Until February 15th, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 74, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon. Mm-hmm.